standard issue for all women. Hi, Hannah here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. One of two chops this week, the other being the latest in our series celebrating Black History Month, where Jen talks to Yomi Adagoke and Elizabeth Uvi Binane, the authors of Slaying Your Lane. So do give that a listen too. In fact, give all of them a listen. You won't regret it. As regular listeners will know, at the end of last month, Mickey and I went over to Dublin's Fair City, where the girls are so pretty radical. We spoke to some completely excellent women while we were there, including Selena Cartmel, artistic director at the Gate Theatre, about her first year and a bit in the job, which included a real baptism of fire when the theatre's previous artistic director, Michael Colgan, was accused of inappropriate behaviour and abuse of power by a number of women in the arts industry. You can hear that interview in next week's podcast. On the Sunday of our weekend in Dublin, Mickey and I woke up next to a farm, a story that's as convoluted as you might expect, but nowhere near as fun, where we were awoken by the unedifying sound of mothers being separated from their calves. As bleak a start to a day as that was, it was strangely poignant and fitting as our next stop was the site of a former Magdalene laundry in the city's Sean McDermott Street, where we met undisputed expert Dr Mavo Rourke. Plans to sell the site to a Japanese budget hotel chain have recently been rejected by councillors, leaving the question of how you wed together the need to commemorate the women who lived and in many cases died there with the needs of a community in an area in need of regeneration. On which note, I'd like to just say that in the photograph of Maeve and I outside the laundry, I'm not looking off to the side in an attempt to look like I'm in a banned photo from the mid-90s. I'd been distracted by some children starting an impromptu firework display about 50 yards away from us. Maybe they were really pleased to see us. I choose to believe that. After we went round the site, we went for a cup of tea with Maeve to talk about life in the laundries, how you ended up there and why laundry survivors as well as victims of mother and baby homes and enforced adoption, are still being prevented from knowing the truth about what happened to them and why. Just a quick note before I go, if you like what we do, remember you can rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps, especially if you give us five stars. The impromptu firework display of reviews. Until next time. Mickey and I are here in the Gresham Hotel in Dublin with the newly minted Dr. Maeve O'Rourke, congratulations, who is a Senior Research and Policy Officer at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, as well as... For the last 10 years, I've also been providing pro bono legal assistance to the Justice for Magdalene's research group. Now, we've just been up to the last... Magdalene Laundry to close in Ireland, which is in Sean McDermott Street, which is just really around the corner from here, quite near the town centre, which closed in, wait for it, 1996. You've been recently involved in a bid to try to preserve that building from being turned into a hotel. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So you're right in saying that the Sean McDermott Street Magdalene site, well, the laundry closed in 96. And around that time, the nuns appeared to have swapped that site for land somewhere else. So Dublin City Council became the owner of that site, and it's 2.3 acres right in the city centre, and it's lain derelict for over 20 years now. 
So the officials in Dublin City Council came up with a plan to sell the site to a Japanese automated hotel chain that would build a 360-room hotel with a supermarket in the facade and, I think, 52 social housing units for older people. That seems like a fitting tribute to all the women who were in the Magdalene laundries, right? A hotel and a, possibly a Tesco. I mean, I mean, like, I'm lost for words, really, when <laughs> trying to describe why this just seems like the most inappropriate use for the site. But the officials in their plan were saying, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for regeneration of what is admittedly an extremely deprived part of Dublin City, uh, that nothing like this will ever come along again. They were planning on selling it for around about 14 million euro, which for a two-point-something acre site seems very little. 14, one four. One four. That does seem really little, because it's so close to the city centre. Yeah, exactly. Um, So for two years now, Gary Gannon, one of the local councillors and other individuals on the council, the elected councillors, have been starting to organise because one of their few powers as the elected councillors is actually to veto or approve the sale of assets. So two years ago, Gary put down a motion for debate um, saying that actually the UN Committee Against Torture is still calling on Ireland to investigate the Magdalene laundries, um, to ensure accountability, to ensure full redress. And given this context, it's entirely inappropriate that the state would be selling the only Magdalene laundry site left, which could potentially be used as a memorial site and as a centre of national commemoration and education. So about three weeks ago, uh, Gary's motion eventually came up before the council and 85% of the councillors voted uh, to veto the plan that the officials had and they made very impassioned speeches about actually how they had been convinced that it's unacceptable to sell this site There's a huge need for social housing and I've spoken to many survivors of the Magdalene Laundries who would say that immediately that there should be more social housing and on this side in particular they'd like to see social housing. But the other thing that the women say and that the councillors in that debate were acknowledging is that unanimously the women say that they want this to be remembered. It should be in the history books, that is why they're speaking out. And not only is there no kind of national commemoration or education plan on the Magdalene Laundries, but also the number one, the very first recommendation of the Ryan Commission, that was the investigation that happened for 10 years from 2000 to 2009 on the industrial schools, their first recommendation that report was a national memorial and that's never been put in place. So the councillors have recognised the need for actually... I suppose, a national action plan to ensure that this history that we have of institutional and church-related abuse, including the forced adoptions, for example, I would even say, you know, the psychiatric homes, admittedly they weren't as related to the church, but that history of institutionalisation and complete denial of dignity to a huge swathe of people, and it was very class-based, that that needs now to be properly um, commemorated and that people need to be empowered to speak about it and we need to have education. 
So now we're at a stage where there is, I suppose, a blank slate and we can have a conversation with survivors of all of the institutions about what they would like to see there. And people can start to think, I think, really bravely and imaginatively about how we would like to remember. I'd also like to see a national archive for the documents from all of the private institutions and the state in relation to these homes and adoption agencies because I think the number one issue that still continues today, the number one way in which people are still being abused is through a lack of access to their own information and a lack of public access to the files that relate to the administration of all of these places. Well, that's interesting because that takes me to the question about the McAleese report into the Magdalene laundries. A lot of the information that the committee saw was then sealed wasn't it? So people... Everything. All of it was. So, yeah, so the McAleese Committee was established in 2011. I had been working with the Justice for Magdalene's group and we had been campaigning for something similar to what had been given to people who were in industrial schools, a state apology, a redress scheme, and the government was just saying, absolutely not, the Magdalene laundries are private. So we brought the issue to the Irish Human Rights Commission and the UN Committee Against Torture. And in 2011, after the UN Committee Against Torture read testimonies that I'd gathered of women who were living in London who'd escaped from Magdalene laundries, they recommended an investigation and the government said, fine. We'll set up an interdepartmental inquiry into the question of state involvement with the Magdalene laundries. Now, that is not a statutory independent investigation into the question of abuses in the Magdalene laundries. It's something entirely different. It was a committee that was made up of senior civil servants from, I think, the seven government departments that had been most involved with the Magdalene laundries. They had an independent chair, uh, Senator Martin McAleese, husband of our former president, Mary McAleese, and they spent 18 months inquiring in private into the extent of state involvement with the laundries. And to me at that time, this seemed almost a delaying exercise or maybe a way of the government trying to see, but which women are we really responsible for? Like, which did we directly put in versus which did we just have an awareness of and fail to protect, in which case, legally speaking, we don't think we're responsible for redress in those circumstances. But that was private. Because it had no statutory powers, it had to enter into this arrangement with the nuns that the nuns would volunteer their records on the condition that the committee would destroy its copies and give all the originals back at the end of its work, which it did. And the committee in its report says, okay, well, with respect to the state records, they were everywhere, here, there, and everywhere. And we collected them all, and we've put them all in an archive, and we're going to give it to the Taoiseach, and people should be able to access it for research purposes in the future albeit that there should be some measures taken to protect private sensitive data. So we've been asking the Department of the Taoiseach ever since, really, for access to this archive because it contains all of the state records relating to the Magdalene laundries. And every single time we've got the response, sorry, this archive is being held for safekeeping and not for the purpose of the Freedom of Information Act. Therefore, the Department of the Taoiseach cannot release it. And I actually requested last month, I thought, okay, another way of doing this might be to get the index to everything that's in it. And then I'll go around and ask for the records from their original places. You know, if the Taoiseach's just keeping a copy, I'll go around and they won't even give me the index of what's in that archive. Wow. 
for our listeners, if we could just sort of dial back to the concept of Magdalene Laundries I think, and maybe dispel a few myths about who was actually in them. Could you tell us how you ended up in a Magdalene Laundry? Sure, there's a real variety of ways. And generally, children were not born in Magdalene Laundries, so women might end up in a Magdalene after having a child in a mother and baby home or a county home. In particular, there was state policy around so-called second-time offenders, that if they'd had a child a second time, they literally were in need of then indefinite detention to make sure it didn't happen again. Jesus. But uh, it's only a woman that can get pregnant, right? You don't yeah. need anyone she else She was involved. the problem. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem. But apart from women who had already had children, the majority were not in, it seems that circumstance so a lot of girls ended up in Magdalene laundries a lot because they had been sexually abused and the parish priest for example thought this was the way to deal with the problem get her out of her town avoid scandal the family might have thought the same thing I've come across um, women who went to the police to say my dad's abusing me and next thing she's in a Magdalene laundry for her own protection I mean the state really relied on the church as we know for a lot of the 20th century to perform what it should have been doing in terms of social care, care of children, care of people with intellectual disabilities for example so a lot of girls people who'd been abused women with intellectual disabilities ended up there also there was a continuous stream of girls from the industrial schools which were run by the nuns, which frequently had children who had been separated from their families. They might have been orphans, but equally they might have been taken into industrial school from a large family. And they really had no one in the world, and the nuns were able to just put them from an industrial school into a Magdalene laundry. Or something that came out of the Mackley support, which is something that the women didn't know, and it was almost given in the Mackley support as like an excuse for for what had happened and a reason why this wasn't actually wrong, they said, well, actually, the women didn't realise that if you were a girl in an industrial school, at the age of 16, yes, you were supposed to leave. But there was actually a power on the manager to call you back at any time until you were 21 if she felt you were in need of protection and to put you wherever she wanted. So there was a licence. Women were actually girls were only released on licence at 16. And they were susceptible to being just picked up again and pushed somewhere for their own protection by the manager of the previous industrial school until 21. What was life like in a Magdalene laundry? The women unanimously say that they could not leave. They were essentially prisons. And even worse than a prison, they had no end date. So this is very clear from the MacLeese report because he did speak to women And he says in his introduction, no one can imagine the terror of girls ending up in a Magdalene laundry and never being told why they were there or when, if ever, they might get to leave. And that, to me, really is the thing that causes, in my very uninformed and unprofessional opinion, the PTSD that we see so Mm -hmm. much of. Mm -hmm. They literally had no idea if they'd ever get out. And girls and younger women were watching older women die we know that there are many unmarked graves related to Magdalene laundries and the women will say that there weren't funerals, that the women were just put in the ground and they believed that that would happen to them. Yeah. They were worked every day except Sundays, although apart from the laundry work that they did 10 hours a day, they then also had other chores, menial chores around the institutions but also in their spare time 
a lot of the women and girls were put to work making lace, making communion dresses, wedding dresses, things. Very lucrative items for sale. And then there was complete denial of identity. So the women's and girls' names were changed in many of the Magdalene laundries, where they were given a number. I actually was involved in organising an event called Dublin Honours Magdalens this past June, where 250 of the women came to Dublin with a companion they hadn't had a chance to meet before. They didn't know each other's names, and if they managed to get out, it was without warning. So we wanted to create this event as a form of redress, as a way of bringing them together so they could talk. And there was an article in the New York Times about it, where the journalist, Ed O'Loughlin, said that he felt we had this um, we had this notice board where the women could put up the notes of, you know, I was called such and such in this Magdalene laundry. I was there from this year to this year. Now I'm called this. Here's my mobile number. If you recognise me, please call. And he said that he'd seen that in refugee camps before, where families yeah. and friends are trying to make contact with each other Just again. dehumanising, isn't it? There was a rule of silence. So most of the time the women and girls weren't speaking. There were punishments for refusal to work. So there were padded cells. Um, In fact, in some of the laundries, women slept in cells, individualised in others in um, big dormitories. Women would be refused food, meals if they refused to work often. And there was physical abuse. Some of the women talked about what we think of as, I suppose, standard physical abuse beatings. But... One of the issues, really, that we're dealing with at present is that the state keeps saying that there wasn't systematic physical abuse in the Magdalene laundries, and no one's recognising that forcing women into unpaid labour 10 hours a day, yeah. six days a week, potentially for years, decades, or even their entire lives, like that, of course, is physical abuse. Absolutely. It's very worrying that we don't, yeah. that the state doesn't recognise that. Obviously, because you can't get information. I don't think you can come up with a figure of how many women we're actually talking about. But do you know what the best guess is? The MacLeese Committee that investigated state involvement say that they found records for over 10,000 women that went in between 1922 and 1996. But that's a real underestimate because they didn't have records. They weren't given records from two of the Magdalene laundries, the one in Dunleary and the one in Galway. So we know that at the very least over 10,000 women and girls went in there. But we know that the record keeping wasn't perfect either it might have an obvious answer but why do you think the state is so keen to abdicate responsibility is it a financial thing or is it more than that why won't it admit what happened Mm. i think a lot of it is financial i think that they have lawyers telling them under no circumstances should you open your archives i think they know that the illegality was absolutely routine and widespread I think that they're worried if they open the Magdalene archive, then they'll be pressed to open other archives. If they were to open adoption records... Or the thin end of the wedge. Or if they were to open up the records of psychiatric institutions, we'd see how people have been treated for the first 100 years of our country. And the state and the church have collaborated in just stripping people of the most basic human rights for death. I I think sometimes there is a level of confusion, the difference between 
like I say, over in England, of the mother and baby homes, the, the Magdalene Lord. Yeah. But they all are sort of different sides of the same coin. It's That's all sort the of thing. Single women come out badly from this. And children, and their yeah. children. Exactly. And it is all part of the one system, and that really is where we need to go now. Because up until now, the state has tried to compartmentalise. And it has been very um, traumatising for people who experience this continuum of abuse. So they started in 1999 with the apology to people who'd been in industrial and reformatory schools and they investigated them and they had a redress scheme for that. But even that then was only a tiny part of a system that included the orphanages, the county homes, the mother and baby homes, the adoption agencies, the Magdalene laundries, the psychiatric homes, and many people went through a whole range of those places. So I came across someone recently who was saying that his view you know, of the current mother and baby homes commission of investigation is that he's like, they're investigating buildings. They're not investigating people or yeah. experiences. Like, this is an investigation into buildings. And that doesn't make sense. So the commission of investigation to mother and baby homes is only looking right now at 14 mother and baby homes and four county homes. Now, there was a county home in every county in Ireland. And this, this investigation sprang from the Tume scandal where the 800 babies' bodies were believed to be in a disused septic tank and that was a big international story in 2015. But they're not actually investigating the big system of adoption. 150,000 people were adopted in Ireland from 1922 to 1998, I think it is. And, and most of those were adopted through adoption agencies. The group I work with, Justice Magdalene's Research, sent a list of 182 agencies, institutions and individuals who were involved in separating unmarried mothers and their children to the Commission of Investigation. It's only investigating 18 of them. So it's time for us, I think, as a nation to just accept that this was a system that you yeah. cannot separate and you are re-traumatising by refusing to include people who went through equally abusive situations and not including them in investigations and in apologies and in redress schemes. We just have to accept this was huge. There are two academics, Ian O'Donnell and Ono Sullivan, who've written a book about Ireland's containment infrastructure, and they say that in 1951, over 1% of the Irish population was incarcerated. God, good Lord. In, in some system or another. Yeah, I prison would have yeah. accounted for a very small part of that. I've been doing quite a lot of reading. You brilliantly sent me lots of links to lots of brilliant podcasts and things to listen to. I've watched a couple of documentaries. There's a sort of a couple of issues that I think they're quite interesting on this, sort of based around gender. The first is this is this is kind of unique in the system that okay, it did exist within the obviously the patriarchy of the church. But this is actually to a large extent woman on woman violence that happened mm. in in the laundries which is something you don't generally see that often well i think that has a large thing to do with patriarchy too because this was all class based and the women from middle class families were sent in to be nuns now i really feel that we have a lot to learn still about how the religious orders worked why people became nuns and priests, what the experience was, why people participated in these highly abusive systems. 
But the whole idea of it being woman on woman, yeah, it's true that a lot of it was, but I think that we really need to maybe start to understand that it wasn't any woman who could end up in a Magdalene laundry. It wasn't any woman who became a nun. There were hierarchies and perhaps the religious orders functioned to abuse women of middle-class families in certain ways too. And so, like I say, I mean, that's another layer. So I've just said, you know, we had over 1% of the population incarcerated. We had a whole other proportion of the population maybe denied also their own autonomy by virtue of the church just running the country. The other interesting thing I found is that, you know, we, we do lots of women's rights issues, and when you do you Googling, you're watching, I don't think I've ever seen so many men's names involved in campaigning issues. I mean, that's not to say that women aren't doing a brilliant job campaigning on this, because they are, but so when you look at, like, Gary Gannon, who you mentioned, who actually was the person who put mm-hmm. us in touch with you, Callan O'Fatter, who writes for the Irish Colonel Examiner. Yep. Yeah. In the UK. Yeah. I mean, Steve Coogan has talked so... After making... Um, Philomena. Philomena. Yeah. talked so much, so yeah. passionately about this issue. Peter Mullen. Martin Sixsmith. Martin Sixsmith. Stephen O'Riordan, who works for Magdalene Survivors Together. When you look at things like people campaigning on other women's rights issues, I don't think you ever see... You see as many men talking as passionately... Is that because it actually affects men, because of the, that well, they were involved in the adoptions, etc., etc.? But also, men were abused as children in church-run yeah. schools. So, again, the patriarchy, like, it's really not as simple as men versus women. It was, it was like it abused women and children. And so there are so many men, I mean, so many, countless in this country, who've been totally abused in church-run institutions as children. So it brings us all together, I think. I think the whole country is probably traumatised. And it's good to see now that there are more and more people standing together to acknowledge the abuse that happened and to try and deal with it. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, the involvement of men is probably because they recognise that these institutions abused them too. I think it's interesting, the men are really absent right now, I think, from the adoption story. You know, yeah. and and from the the question of what happened to women when they were sent into mother and baby homes, county homes, they had their children taken away. Yes, there is definitely a level of, you know, men were abdicating their responsibilities and men were in charge in government and men were allowing this to happen. Like really, of course, they were, and and bishops were men, and mm. this is a male-run system that put all the blame on women for getting pregnant miraculously outside of marriage when actually I think a lot of it was sexual abuse and that's never recognised. But also where is the recognition of the men who were terribly abused by this too, whose partners were not able to keep children because they weren't married? Yeah. May I ask, sort of how the general public in Ireland see the Magdalene Laundry story? Because sometimes with those generational things, and you said, you know, that the whole country is sort of the, historically complicit but also doesn't really know what to do with it. So, yeah. so what has been the reaction? Are people talking about it? Do they know the extent of it? Or is it all being covered up and it isn't something that's spoken about? I actually thought that the Magdalene Laundries came up time and time again in the pre-referendum discussions about yeah. the Eighth Amendment. It was amazing and it was really 
good to see and it made me feel like all of the work that we've done on the Magdalene Laundries was so worth it for more reasons than, you know, just the recognition and dealing with the Magdalene's per se. Yeah, it was really good to see that people were starting to put two and two together to link the appalling institutionalisation and abuse of women in Magdalene laundries and in mother and baby homes and through forced adoption with the issues arising from the Eighth Amendment. Do you then feel that the the success of the campaign to repeal the Eighth, does that then give you hope that we've turned a corner or does it that kind of make it easier to put the past in the past and yeah, I was actually thinking about this this morning. Um, how I would kind of, what it what it means, what the referendum result actually means for the work that I'm doing on historic piece, so-called historic piece. And yeah, I actually do think that it should give us hope for what we can achieve now. It in a similar way to how people say, well, the repeal of the Eighth Amendment is only the beginning because the real work is getting legislation and getting um, proper provision of services and making sure that access is made available all around the country. Like, the same, almost now we need to move into that same kind of detailed, forensic approach to ensuring actual acknowledgement and reparation for historic abuse. But we're getting there. I mean, the building blocks are there. So we had the Magdalene Apology. A lot of people have woken up to our history of it. It was mentioned a lot in relation to the Eighth Amendment. Then women have found their voice in relation to the Eighth Amendment. So, you know, I think the building blocks are there, but we're really only at the very beginning of dealing with all of this. Hello, Mickey again, in your ears. If you'd like to see me in your face, then you can head along to one of our gigs. We've got three left before the end of the year. And they are all at the Leicester Square Theatre. We've got some corking lineups. We never disappoint you. October the 28th, you can join us with June Sarpong, Stacey Solomon and Lisa Riley. On November the 20th, controversially allowing some blokes to do the talking. They're doing that for International Men's Day. And the men doing those chattings are Richard Herring, Colin Jackson and David Morrissey. And on December the 16th, we are finishing the year with a bang with Felicity Ward, Laura Bates and Lolly Adafopi. They're great fun. We'd love to see you there. And you can find out more info about tickets and get your tickets from sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue or by visiting the Leicester Square Theatre website. access to information is the biggest issue. I think it would be really worth talking a little bit about how that's affecting adopted people and the issues in Toome. So I'm sure that your listeners might have come across the story of the 800 babies' bodies suspected to have been buried unmarked in the disused septic tank next to the old mother and baby home in Toome. Ever since 2015, this has been a huge issue and there's a mother and baby homes commission investigation. And people may think that like it's been dealt with. But I'm really interested in the legal barriers uh, to people kind of finding out the truth and to the legal side of all of this struggle for, for reparation and struggle for acknowledgement. I really believe that the state is still exerting enormous power and control over people who are affected by 
the forced adoptions and family separations as well as Magdalene women because it's still got all these structures in place that prevent access to information and access to the truth. The state is exerting its power still in really serious ways by kind of refusing to change any laws and relying on the laws and kind of almost acting as if it's helpless to give people the primary thing that they want which is access to the truth to the records to their own information and to public information about how these places are run so that it can kind of corroborate what people are saying because i think the state knows and the church know that when people are saying it and there's no records then there's plausible deniability if you know what i mean and if those records were available then it would do so much to give respect to the people who keep speaking out because we'd be able to say look like they are telling the truth and so the state and the church are able to kind of say well they're just saying that and it was a very long time ago and we don't really know and hearsay this and suspicion that but there is a lot of information there are a lot of answers in the records at the moment adopted people in Ireland do not have a statutory right to their birth certificate They don't have a statutory right to their adoption file. These things are available to people in England who are adopted, and they have been for decades, and the same in Northern Ireland, and all around Europe as well, of course. The people in Tume, so there are all these family members who for years now have believed their relatives to be buried in that grave. One thing they're asking for is the exhumation and identification of remains. But the other thing, in my view, that they're more than entitled to do and they're not getting is access to their relatives' files. So we need now legislation that gives people rights in legislation to the information that is like the most basic form of redress. So family members of people who died in these institutions need a right in law to the personal records of their relatives. They also need to be able to see the administrative records so that they start to understand and can verify the conditions in these places and how the state was involved and what the religious orders were doing and how the whole network ran. Um, There's also a need for individuals to be able to get more access to their own records. So people who are in Magdalene laundries, people who are in um, any form of institution to be able to access more than just one line in a ledger saying you were here. What about their medical records? What about the records of just their daily lives? What about being able to see the administrative records of these institutions? So we need to provide that. Um, And also the public needs to start having access so that the history can be written. Well, I think it leads to a misunderstanding in the general public of they go, well, you know, all this onus is put on the state and the church, but the families aren't looking. And actually it's, they can't look. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to be general knowledge. I know, and the other thing they can't do is go to court. So yeah. in Ireland, we have a statute of limitations, which puts severe restrictions, as in other countries, on your ability to take cases after, you know, after years have passed. So there's a two-year limitation period for personal injury and constitutional law cases here. It used to be six years. But people who, who themselves are affected or whose family members died or were affected by the institutionalisation... They're well past these limitation periods. Now, in England, there is an exception where the courts can say that if they feel that a case could fairly go ahead, let's say there's lots of archival evidence, there's lots of corroborating testimony available, they have an equitable discretion 
under one of the sections of your Limitation Act to allow cases to go forward. For example, that is the reason that the Mau Mau community were able to get compensation from the UK government for torture experienced in Kenya in the 1950s. They settled their case in 2012 because there was a whole archive of state documents corroborating what they had said had happened. Whereas here, that limitation period is absolute, so it's just not possible for people to sue the state or the church. The other way they cannot get to court and cannot get the documents out that way is because whenever the state has allowed people to get payments, they've made people sign away all their rights against the state and the church. So anyone who went through the Magdalene scheme where they were given limited payments for their experiences, they had to sign to say they'd never sue the state. Anyone who went through the redress scheme for industrial schools equally had to sign to say they'd never sue the state or the church. Police investigations, you might say. What about them? Could they not uncover some evidence? Well, the investigations that the state has set up have been done in a way as to seal the archives so that they can't be used by the police. So the current Mother and Baby Homes Commission of Investigation is proceeding um, in accordance with the 2004 Commissions of Investigation Act. And under that act, the Commission can choose to hold hearings in public, but the general presumption is that it will be in private. Now, to date, the Mother and Baby Homes Commission has refused all requests for public hearings. Everything has happened in private, and once it happens in private, it's a criminal offence for any person to publish evidence given in private. And the whole archive will be sealed, will never be available to the police or for use in the civil courts, and they won't even give a transcript to the witnesses who go and give oral evidence before the Commission. You can come in and view a copy of a transcript, but they won't let you have it. So I actually set up a project called the Clan Project three years ago with the uh, international law firm Hogan Lovells with their London office, where 50 of their lawyers have been taking witness statements from people who would like to actually own a copy of their evidence, give it to the Mother and Baby Homes Commission, but retain a copy themselves. And we actually, the Clan Project's going to be releasing the report that we sent to the Mother and Baby Homes Commission on the 15th of October, and we'll be making recommendations for this kind of access to information that I'm talking about. Final thing that I'll say about kind of how the state stopping the truth coming out is that it's also prevented people telling their own testimony. So under law, people who took payments from the redress scheme set up for residential schools, that was back from 2002 to 2005, if they received compensation, they cannot ever publicly identify the individual or institution that was involved in the abuse that they got compensation for. Well, that just, again, is another way of preventing almost what you would say is like a unionisation of, of victims exactly. in, the, in, in the same way that, you know, if a man's accused of sexual assault, you're much more likely to come forward if you yeah. know that somebody else has also And I think, that. doesn't it make the question of what happens to Sean McDermott Street so much more uh, urgent and meaningful? Like, you can see now why we need a national centre of commemoration and education and a national archive. Oh, And I these laws agree. need to be changed. Because otherwise people in 30 years' time will just have no idea of what happened. Reminds me of the, the Berlin Wall. I could understand why people wanted to tear it down, but you had to leave a bit of it standing because it was 50 years of that city's history, and you can't just let that go in the past because otherwise, how do you stop it happening again? It feels like hundreds of years of disappearing women, and it's like, well, let's just disappear everything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we do, we do have current, we, we really do have current versions of what happened in the past because, again, 
that we haven't changed the structures yet. We've just tried to pay money and we haven't acknowledged that actually all of this was orchestrated and it all comes from how the state has set up how it provides social services. So its tradition has been, and I suppose it's a post-colonial thing maybe, to give all the power to private enterprise, that is, was in the past, the Catholic Church still is to a large extent, to run what are actually public services, which it pays for but then takes absolutely no responsibility for. So it still says to the UN um, every year the Magdalene laundries are actually private institutions and there's been no state court finding that there's state liability for them. And the Irish Supreme Court is still quite reticent to place um, vicarious liability, for example, on the state for the actions of, for example, primary school teachers who it's paying for, but actually the state, the church is managing. Now, we have a current version of this in direct provision, which is a system where we provide services to asylum seekers. So at present, the Irish government pays and has paid billions to private enterprise, private companies to set up hostels or they use old hotels or old holiday camps to provide accommodation to asylum seekers and they give €21 a week um, to live on. You don't make your own food. Um, But this has no underpinning statutory basis. There's no legislation providing for this. The state pays an absolute fortune and these companies are unaccountable. They're not considered public bodies. People don't have the rights against them that you'd ordinarily have. And it just, to me, is like an exact replica of what the state did in the past. And so I'd personally like to see a system where if we manage to convince the state that the records of the Magdalene laundries, for example, should be in the National Archive, I mean, the records of direct provision providers should also be treated as public records and after 20 years be deposited in the National Archive too. We really need to change all our structures and like that's not going to happen overnight. There doesn't seem to be any non-sneaky, not nefarious reason to keep everything sealed and secret. It, it doesn't seem like, well, it's just what people do to make sure they... I don't know, I can't think of any good reason to do it apart from so people don't know what we're doing is a bit underhand. Or a lot underhand. Or it might cost... A lot of money. And people I know and people I'm related to might be named in those records. Yeah. yeah. Or organisations, like we were saying earlier. You know, the laundries weren't working for no one, were they? they somebody was getting yeah. slave labour, basically, in order to them to make a lot of money or save a lot of money. Yeah, it's staggering. Thank you so much for this. It's been so interesting, mate. We could talk to you all day. <laughs> What can we do to help further things? Obviously, for our Irish listeners, what can they do? But also, for if there's anything we can do overseas for our sisters, what, what can we do? I think people could really start calling for statutory rights to information and for truth-telling, because actually that's what we haven't got up until now, and that is the absolute basic requirement for any form of compensation or apologies to mean something. Because without the truth the other forms of redress are sometimes more of an insult than anything else. So people need to get aware that the crying out problem is lack of access to information and start supporting the call for rights and law. And then I think to keep an eye on what's happening with the Sean McDermott Street site to make sure that the focus is still kept on that because 
the officials, when Gary's motion went through, said, well, this is extremely disappointing because nothing's going to happen this site now for years. And I just think that's an unacceptable attitude. And in order for something to happen it, then they need to know that the public's watching. So I think to keep an eye on that would be really helpful. Can you petition TDs or anything like that? Yes, and... Okay, this is going to be a really joint effort between local officials and politicians and national officials and politicians. And funding is going to have to be given from central government to help it along. And also, I think philanthropic funding is going to be a huge part of achieving something great on that site. So, yes, people can get in touch with the national politicians who are responsible um, for government, so with their Fine Gael politicians in particular. And it's important to say, I think, that on the night of the apology to Magdalene Laundry survivors in 2013, the Taoiseach Enda Kenny said that a memorial was absolutely essential. And he did designate 58 to 60 million euro for the Magdalene scheme, and only half of that has been spent. So we should demand that the money is put in to making this site a place where the women and their experiences and those of people across the institutional system are never forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Standard Issue for All Women